Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, this is the third week of our new sermon series on the book of Romans. We got through the greeting the first week, and then we looked at uh, Paul's longing to be with the Romans last time. And now we're reaching the point which theologians will tell you is where, where Paul states his theme. If you've ever had to write a term paper in school, you know, the, the thematic statements at the beginning is essentially the case that you're going to prove in the body of the work. So right up front, Paul is going to tell us the, the substance of the gospel, and the rest of the book is going to be an unfolding of the things that he's going to state in this opening in verse 16 and 17. So verses 16 and 17, it's the first little section that you have in your order of worship. This is the theme of the gospel that uh, Paul states in the book of Romans. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So those two verses are the theme, but I want to look at a little bit of of extra material that connects into this. I also want to look at verse 18, the verse that comes immediately afterwards, because there is a connection rhetorically. You see in verse 17, Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed, but in verse 18, he talks about something else that is revealed. He says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Usually, when you look at verse 18, you think of it as the beginning of another section, and so we tend to look at 17 and 18 as having a lot of distance between them. But this morning, I want to think of them together as as two statements about revelation. And it's important to keep them together. But there's another passage I also want to include. And for this one, we go to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And again, the reason we're including it is because of a rhetorical feature. Paul repeats himself. So we see in verse 16, he says, Salvation is to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you see that statement, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, repeated again in chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. In fact, he repeats it twice. He says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So in looking at the theme, the summary of the gospel, I also want to consider the way that the introduction of that theme affects what happens in the next two chapters. Because after this, starting in verse 18, Paul goes on a long statement about human sin, a long uh, list of sins, a diatribe against sin, an exposition on the sinfulness of human beings, just how bad they really are. And I promise we're not skipping over that. We're not skipping ahead to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But I want to establish a larger framework 
in which that, that discussion of sin takes place so that we can then go back in future sermons and fill in those blanks. So the big picture is what we're going to look at this morning, and then in the weeks to come, we're going to fill in the details of what Paul's getting at. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which that doesn't really sound like high praise. When you were a child and your parents introduced you to their friends, how impressed do you think you would have been if your father had pushed you forward and said, here's my child, I'm not ashamed of him. Not ashamed of him. Great. But you'd rather hear something like, I'm proud of him. Like, I think he's, he's really nice. Like, you should really embrace him and appreciate him. And, and you'd think that Paul would say something like that for the gospel. Here's the gospel. I'm really excited about it. Here's the gospel. It blows my mind. Here's the gospel. I can't get enough of it. Instead, he says, here's the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. But this isn't a fluke. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and you look at the way that he talks about the gospel... There, he talks about this idea of people's skepticism towards the gospel. He says, look, I know, to the Jews, when I preach the gospel, it's a stumbling block. It's not what they're expecting to hear. When I preach it to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. So Paul expects that there will be skepticism towards the message. He's saying, I'm not ashamed of it because he knows that a lot of people who hear it will think he should be. This is the kind of thing you should be ashamed of believing. This is the kind of thing that you should be ashamed of talking about in public. And so he takes that on right away. Now, we often tell ourselves as as modern people that that, uh, it is a lot harder for us to believe in Christ than it would have been for people back then. For them, this would have been easy. This wouldn't have been such a a big deal for them because they were pretty, you know, primitive. You know, they were all pretty religious. They were used to this kind of stuff. This was just kind of moving from one religion to another. It wasn't that big a leap. But but now it's harder because we have science, because we've made so much progress, because the extent of our knowledge has grown so much that for us it's much more difficult. The fact that Paul is, is opening his explanation of the gospel by saying, I'm not ashamed of it, should correct that misapprehension. This was never easy. This was never easy to believe. There was always skepticism. This was always a huge leap for people. It was a stumbling block. It was foolishness. It's always sounded that way when people have heard the gospel. Paul knows it, and he takes that head on. He dresses that head on. I mean, strange as it seems to say this, I would argue that in some ways it's actually easier for us than it would have been for them. Because we've inherited a Christian culture. It may not be what it once was, but we've inherited a culture where Christian ideas about the world, Christian ideas of morality, are treated as common sense. As if everybody just believes that, that's the way it's always been. So in one sense, we have less learning to do, less of a challenge than they would have had. But if the gospel didn't spread back then because it was easier, why did it spread? What was happening 
Paul says it spread because the gospel was the power of God for salvation. The gospel has always spread, in other words, because of God's sovereign power, because it was something God was doing. It wasn't about how receptive the people were. It wasn't about how difficult it would be for them to get their minds around it. It was always about what God was doing, God's power. It was bringing about salvation. Now, when Paul says he's not ashamed, there is a little bit of history to that way of speaking. Throughout Scripture, there's a term that you'll see used. We actually saw it earlier from Peter uh, in our uh, assurance of pardon after our confession of sin, where Peter says, if you just turn back, you'll see the passage that I'm talking about. This is 1 Peter 2.6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah there, and Paul will quote this same passage later on in the book of Romans, that idea of being put to shame means to be defeated. To be put to shame is to be humiliated, to be defeated, to have your hopes turn out to be ill-grounded. Christ is the cornerstone that Isaiah refers to, that Peter refers to, that, that Paul refers to. Christ is the cornerstone. And whoever believes in Christ will not be defeated. Whoever believes in Christ, Paul says, will not be overcome. That hope will not be vanquished. He's not ashamed because he is confident that the gospel will prevail. He's saying he isn't ashamed because he knows that the gospel will win. The gospel will win. The gospel is the way that God is saving people. In 2 Timothy 1, he writes to Timothy about his sufferings, what he's endured on account of the gospel. And he says, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Well, the one that he believes in is Christ. The one he has confidence in is Christ, and he believes that Christ will see the gospel through to completion. That's why he's not ashamed. Because it's not about his eloquence. It's not about how well he states it. It's not about how well you get it. It's about the power of God to salvation. To everyone who believes, he says. To everyone who believes. There are two phrases in uh, verses 16 and 17. One of them is uh, pretty easy for us, and the other one's a little bit cryptic. Everyone who believes, and then in verse 17, from faith for faith. I know what everyone who believes means. That's, that's part of every gospel presentation. Jesus will save whoever believes, everyone who believes. Uh, just come. We talked about the inclusiveness of the gospel last time, and here Paul is affirming that once more. This is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes without distinction. There's no discrimination arising from race or culture. There's no obstacle based on the degradation of your sin. Everyone who believes... The gospel saves. Wherever there's faith, God is working salvation. Everyone who believes. But that other phrase always puzzled me. I don't know about you, but it always seemed like one of those uh, rhetorical flourishes that sounds pretty, but if someone explains or someone asks, like, what does that mean? It's harder to say, and that's, that's from faith for faith. 
He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What does that mean? There are different theories, interpreters trying to explain exactly what Paul is getting at. I think the most convincing explanation is actually that it's a repetition of that earlier idea. It's building on that earlier idea that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In other words, that uh, faith is all it requires. Faith is all it takes. Uh, John Murray, who's a professor at, at Westminster back in the day, says, from faith points to the truth that only by faith are we beneficiaries of this righteousness. So it is a faith righteousness, as truly as it is a God righteousness. The other part, for faith, underlines the truth that every believer is the beneficiary, whatever his race or culture or the degree of his faith. Faith always carries with it the justifying righteousness of God. It's not a question of how much faith you have. It's not a question of of how low the bar of your sin is so that it's possible to clear it with the amount of faith that you happen to have. Wherever there is faith, this righteousness of God is at work. The gospel is God's righteousness at work. Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is revealed. It's one of two things. The wrath is revealed in verse 18, and in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. And in both cases, it's the same word that's being translated as revealed in the English. It's apocalyptotai. And interestingly, in Greek, there's the parallel connection, just like we have in English, where we have revealed and revelation. It's two words clearly connected. It's the same way in Greek. This word apocalyptotai is related to apocalypsis, which is the name of the last book of the Bible. We call it revelation, but the first word in the book is apocalypsis. Apocalypse sounds pretty ominous, like a doomsday prediction. Paul's not saying the gospel brings about doomsday, but he is suggesting that the righteousness of God is more active than we realize. When he talks about revelation, he means something a little bit different than it might sound like at first. When I think about something being revealed, the picture that often comes to my mind is the idea of, you know, you have something hidden behind the curtain, and then somebody comes along and draws back the curtain, and you can see whatever was behind. Like the Wizard of Oz, spoiler alert, the end of the movie, The Wizard of Oz is revealed when somebody pulls back a curtain that they shouldn't have pulled back and you see a little guy at the levers doing it all. A lot of times we think of it that way. So when you read a passage like this, the righteousness of God is revealed, you imagine a curtain being drawn back and you can see behind that curtain God's righteousness. Maybe it wasn't visible before, but now in the gospel it's apparent. You can now see what was hidden, this righteousness of God. But of course... Righteousness as an abstract quality, as an attribute of God, was not hidden prior to the gospel. No one in the Old Testament was asking themselves, hmm, I wonder if God is just. I don't know. I can't see behind the curtain. Right? Going back as far as Abraham, the assumption was that he was just, that he must be just. So Paul isn't saying that in the gospel we suddenly realize, because the curtain is drawn back, that that God must be righteous. Instead, it's a little bit different. Think of Revelation in this case, not so much as somebody drawing back the curtain to show what's behind it. Think of it this way. 
something emerging through the curtain. The curtain is parting, not because somebody has drawn it back, but because whatever was behind it is now moving forward, is now rushing out and parting the curtain as it comes. That's the sense of revelation. There is a righteousness of God that is at work, that is doing something, that is moving forward in the gospel, and that's how it is revealing itself, through its action. Through its action, the righteousness of God is being revealed, breaking into view. It is at work in the world, and now we can see it. But of course, so is the wrath of God. There is a wrath of God poured out, directed against sin, and that too has an action, a work in the world. It has consequences in the world. And in order to understand how the gospel is putting God's righteousness to work, we have to appreciate how the effects of sin, the consequences of sin, are creating the world that that righteousness is entering into. That's the context where we need to see Paul's longer explanation of unrighteousness, of sin. In verse 18, he, he only touches the surface. He only gives us a little bit of the consequences of sin when he talks about this idea that uh, the, the truth is being suppressed. The truth is being suppressed, he says. This is 18... He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You often hear Christians say, based on Romans 1.18, that unbelievers know that there is a God, but they suppress that truth. They suppress it. And that word suppress in modern English has a certain context. It makes you think maybe in psychological terms, uh, suppressed memories. Memories that, that you've forgotten, but if you go under hypnosis or something, we could recover them. And you might be tempted to think that's what Paul means, that secretly everybody knows that God exists, but they're suppressing that truth. I uh, mentioned Sinclair Ferguson earlier. Sinclair Ferguson once joked that the way that we talk about this idea of suppressing the truth gives the impression that if you could just grab your favorite unbeliever and tie him down in a chair and shoot him up with truth theorem, you would admit I know there is a God. Deep down, I know I'm just suppressing the truth. That's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's not necessarily saying, well, everybody knows that God exists. They're just pretending otherwise. They're just burying it deep down. Uh, suppression here, the word suppression, could also be translated as holding back the truth. They hold back the truth. And they do it in a particular kind of way. Right? Men, by their unrighteousness, hold back the truth. Paul refers to two kinds of offenses, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is religious in nature. So when you hear ungodliness, you might think of idolatry, false worship, that sort of thing. But unrighteousness has a moral character to it. So where ungodliness might be worshiping false gods... Unrighteousness is doing bad things, behaving in immoral ways, breaking the moral law of God. And obviously there's a connection between the two, impiety and unrighteousness go together. But specifically what he's saying is by our unrighteousness, by our immorality, by our habit of sin, we hold back the truth. Simply put, what blinds us to the reality of God that is all around us is our own sinfulness. 
It's hard to talk about things that you don't even have a word for. It's hard for us to to communicate about things we don't have the language to communicate about. But actually, it's worse than that. If you don't have the language, it is difficult even to perceive those things. You've heard the saying, I don't know if it's true or not, that the Eskimos have 32 words for snow. And presumably, they can tell the difference between those, those types of snow. To me, it just looks like snow. Without that mental apparatus to to distinguish, you don't even see the differences. Something similar is going on with sin. Because of the pattern of sinfulness in human hearts, because of the way that we live our lives, the immorality that characterizes our lives, we are blind to a reality that is all around us. We are incapable, we don't have the language to even observe the differences, the gradations. So there are things that in God's eyes, God catalogs with degrees of sinfulness that we look at, and not only do we look at those things and say, I don't think it's that bad, but a lot of times we look and see nothing at all. We don't even appreciate that there's a question to be asked about what we've done. That is a blindness that is produced by our sin. It is a consequence of ongoing sinfulness. The wrath of God that is being revealed is God giving consequences for human sinfulness. We'll see as we go through the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and into chapter 3 how all-pervading those consequences are and how they shape the world that we live in. Our habit of sin produces an inability to see. But Paul gives hope. Paul says the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This is another Old Testament quote. This one comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. So don't ever let anyone tell you that the Old Testament preaches salvation by works and the New Testament changes it up and preaches salvation by grace because Paul in the New Testament preaches salvation by faith through grace, quoting Habakkuk the Old Testament as his text. This text, these words of Habakkuk quoted by Paul, are what made the light bulb go off in Martin Luther's head. Like This is the moment, the kernel, that begins the Reformation. And these words, the righteous shall live by faith. But what does that mean? We've already seen Paul doesn't mean the righteous shall, shall live by faith in some sort of abstract sense. He's not referring to God's divine attribute of justice. He doesn't mean the fact that God is righteous is now being revealed. We knew already that God was righteous. What Paul means here is that there is a righteousness of God that is now revealing itself through the action of the gospel. and That is how we live. That is the source of of our life. This righteousness of God is what saves. The righteous shall live by faith, not by works. The righteous shall live by God's righteousness, not by their own righteousness that comes through works. The righteous shall live by God righteousness, the righteousness of God, which only comes through faith. Paul will explain this later, but he's asserting it now. This is the righteousness of Christ that he's referring to. The righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed, that is attributed to everyone who has faith. That everyone who has faith 
as a borrowed righteousness of Christ. And it is that righteousness by which we live. That righteousness that comes only through faith. God's righteousness is set against, is in contrast to all human unrighteousness. But Paul also sets it in contrast to all human righteousness as well. It's not just God's righteousness versus human unrighteousness. It's God's righteousness versus human unrighteousness and human righteousness. In other words, you cannot be saved in your sin, but you cannot be saved in your righteousness either. It's a two-pronged attack that he's making, and it's embodied in that phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When Paul gives his catalog of sin, the rest of chapter 1 is devoted to the sins of the Gentiles, the sins of the Gentile world. And then starting in chapter 2, he turns his attention to the sins of the Jews, the sins of the Jewish world. And what he's doing there is showing what they have in common, bringing them together, showing that there is a common condemnation. The Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jew and the Greek are in the same situation. We are all in this together. In other words, the Greeks will not be saved by becoming good Jews. The plan of salvation for the Gentiles is not to convert to Judaism and start living righteous lives because that would not be enough. It would not be enough. If the unrighteous start cleaning up their acts and becoming righteous, it won't make a difference because the damage of sin is too great. The damage is too great to be addressed by merely amending our ways. Something much greater is required. As a result, Paul wants us to know that we're all in this together. Whether you're a Jew or Greek, whether you are a Hellene or a barbarian, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are wise or foolish, we are all in this together. Whether you are an apostle or you are an unrepentant sinner, we are all in this together. There is a common condemnation, in other words, that we all share. The libertine and the moralist are side by side in condemnation. None of us anything to be proud of. The problem with these passages in Scripture that start rattling off sinful behavior is that when people find this stuff, what they imagine is that Christians in church are reading this stuff with glee. We open our Bibles to Romans 1 and we read about the wrath of God poured out against unrighteousness and we're like, yeah, God, get them. They deserve it. You should punish those people because they're not like us. But that's not the Spirit which we should approach these texts. In uh, Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov, there are these two brothers having a conversation. One of them is an absolute profligate. I won't go into the details of his sin, but let's just say he and his father are in competition for the heart of the same woman. And he is cataloging all of his crimes to his younger brother, who's a monk, who they all look at as saintly. And when he describes all the terrible things that he's done, he turns to his saintly monk brother and says, I'm sure you're shocked by all of this. He can see on his brother's face this, this look of horror that he has. His brother realizes, you're not like me. I'm a sinner. I do all these terrible things. You're appalled to hear it. 
And his saintly brother turns to him and, and says, no, I, I feel revulsion, but not because of how evil you are in comparison to me, but because everything that you've said, I see in myself as well. Because I'm like you, brother. That's the spirit in which we should always approach these things. Paul isn't revealing to us the hearts of others. He's revealing our own hearts to us and telling us that in sin, we are all in this together. We are all in this condemnation together, which would be terrible news if the gospel didn't say that in faith, we are all in this together as well. In faith, we are united. The only way to be saved, not by our own righteousness, not by being better than people who are, are not as good as us. That means nothing. The damage is too great for that to make any difference at all. We are all together in this sense that salvation is the same for all of us and it is in the righteousness of God, not ourselves. The righteousness of God that belongs to everyone who believes. In Romans 2, 9 and 10, he makes that parallel really clear. Contrasts two experiences. The two experiences, the experience of, of doing evil, the experience of doing good. Those who do evil experience consequences in life, not just cosmic penalties for sin, but bad things that happen in life as a result of the evil that we do. Paul describes this as tribulation and distress. Tribulation and distress. Evil is powerful. The grip of evil is powerful, but evil is self-defeating. Evil gnaws away at its own flesh. Evil creates misery. It creates distress. But the experience of being in Christ gives life. It brings glory and honor and peace. Shalom. That profound peace that we talked about earlier. Shalom. An order, a harmony to all of our relationships available to us only in Christ. Paul says that everyone who does good, regardless of who they are, receives these things, the glory and the honor and the peace to everyone who does good. But then, of course, in Romans 3.12, he says no one does good, not even one. The way to have these things is not by being a good person. The way to have these things is to be united to the good person of Jesus Christ. By faith. By faith. That's all that it takes. Only through the righteousness of Christ that belongs to us by faith can we be saved. In a nutshell, what Paul is telling us here is that your own sin has blinded you to the reality that's all around you. And the wrath that follows that sin has filled your life with tribulation and distress. Our unrighteousness has done so much damage that we can't reverse it just by trying to be good, trying to, to amend our ways. But now, now the righteousness of God has gone to war against sin. The righteousness of God in Jesus Christ will be victorious over sin. And no one who puts his hope in the righteousness of Christ will be put to shame. Put your hope in the righteousness of Christ. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.